This is Amy Kretkowski, one of your hosts of Arguendo, the Veterans Law Podcast. Right after we recorded this episode, the Veterans Court issued its decision in Held v. McDonough. We decided to include our discussion of the oral argument here since we think, hope, you'll find it interesting. In other news, in the Haskell case, the secretary has informed the court that Mr. Haskell's wife is indeed his wife and therefore an eligible substitute. Enjoy the show. All right. Welcome to Arguendo, the Veterans Law Podcast with Amy and Amy, the show that focuses on oral arguments and trends at the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. And the U.S. Court of Appeals for Federal Circuit, and rarely the Supreme Court. We're your hosts. I'm Amy Odom. And I'm Amy Kretkowski. The United States Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims is now in session. And this podcast is going to delve into two oral arguments, both from the Veterans Court. Uh, We're going to start off with Haskell v. McDonough, which is docket number 22-1018. This case was argued on August 15th, 2023 at the University at Buffalo School of Law, which happens to be the only law school in the SUNY system, the State University of New York system. I didn't know that until I looked it up. Um, This case was argued before Chief Judge Bartley, Judge Falvey, and Judge Maurer, arguing on behalf of the appellant the lovely and talented Amy Odom, and arguing for the secretary is Brian Carey. Um, Amy, since this was your case, and I'm going to cover it, but since this is your case, can you give us a little bit of background on Mr. Haskell um, and uh, the the situation uh, leading up to the oral argument? Yeah, this was a really sad story that unfortunately we've seen a lot uh, in the veterans law community. Uh, Mr. Haskell is a Viet- was a Vietnam veteran. He suffered absolutely catastrophic injuries in the line of duty. He was um, hit with a rocket, which uh, damaged his skull. He actually underwent a craniotomy in service following the injury. And um, as a result, suffered a pretty serious brain injury, what we now know and call traumatic brain injury. He went on to have, you know, a relatively difficult life. He was able to go to college and uh, he married and his wife was a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I can't remember which one, but she was able to really assist him with all of the needs that he had as a result of this traumatic brain injury that he re- he lived with it for his entire life. Unfortunately, Mr. Haskell passed away the day before the oral argument in this case, and we were fortunate that the court did continue with the oral argument, and we fully anticipate that um, Mr. Haskell's wife will be able to substitute for him in this appeal, Um, and if we are successful at the court and then successful back down at the agency, um, she'll be able to recover any benefits that they should have paid to him while he was alive. Yeah, that's a really unfortunate situation that unfortunately happens too often. I'm uh, I am glad though that the court did go ahead with the oral argument, and you you have filed the motion to substitute. That's been done at the agency. Yes, right? yes, we are waiting for the secretary to announce his position about whether the wife is the wife, and the wife who has been the wife for right, all the right. years, who has been uh, recognized as the wife by VA previously, exactly. probably in. God love them. Okay. 
We just have to go through the bureaucracy. So the issue here in Haskell is one of statutory interpretation. And the question, the specific question to address is whether VA's regulation, 38 CFR 3.352B2, is a reasonable interpretation of the statute, 38 U.S.C. 1114 sub T, and specifically whether the additional requirement of a higher level, level of care that was added into the regulation, whether that conflicts with the statute, which does not include this requirement. So the statute in this case is uh, 38 U.S.C. 1114 sub T. And this statute was added in uh, 2010 to address uh, veterans who had severe residuals of traumatic brain injury. And so what the statute says is if a veteran needs, one, regular aid and attendance, two, for residuals of a service-connected TBI, and three, is not eligible for compensation under 1114R2 and four, without that regular aid and attendance, the veteran would require hospitalization, nursing home care, or other residential institutional care. Then five, the veteran shall be paid at the R2 rate. 1114R2 provides a higher monthly benefit, a higher monthly uh, amount of pay for a seriously disabled veteran who, in addition to needing regular aid and attendance, also needs a higher level of care. And without that care would require hospitalization, nursing home care, or other residential institutional care. So while R2 and T have that same language of without regular aid and attendance would require hospitalization, nursing home care, or other residential institutional care, R2 is the only one that says that the veteran needs a higher level of care. Sub T doesn't use that higher level of care language. The regulation uh, 3.352 sub B talks about the basic criteria for the higher level of aid and attendance. Uh, B2 adds a requirement for that higher rate and it says that as a result of service-connected residuals of traumatic brain injury, the veteran needs a higher level of care than what's required for regular aid and, aid and attendance. And without the care, the veteran would need to be hospitalized, have some sort of you know, inpatient uh, care. So Amy starts the oral argument by uh, taking the judges to school a little bit with uh, statutory interpretation uh, 101. It is a fundamental principle of statutory interpretation that when Congress omits a word or phrase that appears elsewhere in the statute, it does so on purpose. Here in 2010, when Congress added subsection T, it did not include the term higher level of care. Clearly then, Congress intended to create different substantive requirements for enhanced special monthly compensation based on residuals of TBI. So Judge Falvey starts the statutory interpretation analysis in a true Chevron style um, by looking at the plain language of the statute. And Chevron is the case that says that if the statute, if the plain language of the statute is clear um, and, and plain, you know, clear on its face, 
then you know, you're supposed to follow the plain language of the statute. If it's ambiguous or if there's a gap in the language of the statute, if there's an unanswered question in the statute, then the court is supposed to defer to the agency's reasonable interpretation of that statute through the agency's regulation. And so Judge Falvey um, starts, starts off the, this uh, Chevron analysis um, basically looking at the plain language of the statute, which is, I think, where the, 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 the analysis in this case kind of starts and should end. Yeah, that's what we hope. So your reading of SMCT is that the vet, if the veteran is in need of regular aid and attendance because of TBI, traumatic brain injury, if the answer to that is yes, the second question is, without that regular aid and attendance, would they need to be institutionalized? If that answer to that is yes, they qualify. That's right. And that, that's all from the plain language of T, no gap in that an analysis, right? Exactly. And so anything that adds to that by regulation, unnecessarily adds to that, should be invalidated. That's right. Exactly. So the plain language of 1114T says absolutely nothing about higher level of care. Remember, that's the language that's in R2. It's not in T. The regulation then imposes the higher level of care requirement on 1114T, on the TBI, the people who have severe residuals of tra traumatic brain injury, when the plain language of the statute clearly does not say anything about a higher level of care. Plain language, Chevron step one, we're done. Here's Amy and Judge Falvey again. This requirement in the regulation that uh, a veteran show that uh, the 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 level of assistance needed is such that the person providing it would need health care training is inconsistent with the statute. But the statute doesn't uh, just say um, supervised care or something like that. It says hospitalization or nursing home care or other, implying that it's like hospitalization or nursing home care, other residential institutional care. Can't that be read to imply that there's something more that's required? And then the Secretary's counsel may very well argue that that something more is that what's being provided at home is the equivalent of that? No, Your Honor. Congress knew how to say higher level of care is required also, and Congress did not do that, and we can't ignore that. Judge Falvey then jumps in and shows some support for the appellant's argument by pointing out that requiring a higher level of care for subsection T would basically make it exactly the same as subsection R2, which why then it would you create subsection T if it's just going to be exactly the same as subsection R2. Here's Amy's response. And that's why they created subsection T, not as an equivalent to R2, but as a more straightforward way for veterans who suffer from these, they have to be severe residuals to get the level of compensation that are that is provided to veterans with physical injuries. And if they wanted just to make it an equivalent, to just include it within R2 as the equivalent of loss of arms, limbs, right. et cetera. Instead, right. they created a different provision with different requirements. That's right. 
I mean, I'm old enough to remember in 2009 there was a national awakening to traumatic brain injury as the signature wound of veterans coming home from OIF, OEF. And this is Congress's attempt to ensure that those veterans receive the care that they need when they returned. Amy's not that old. Old enough to remember 2009, though. Amy is that old. (laughs) Amy's actually like 83 years old. She moisturizes heavily. Those those children that she trots out, she says that they're her children. They're actually her grandchildren. (laughs) All right. So the secretary is his turn now. He starts the argument by framing the question as one of eligibility versus entitlement, which I'm not sure I followed that. And, and truth be told, I'm not the only one who wasn't really following that argument. So here's the secretary's counsel followed by uh, Chief Judge Bartley. So again, the whole system is about um, ensuring that veterans with the same level of disability receive the same level of compensation. And here to, um, if we are to take the, the language of Section T literally, it would mean that veterans with traumatic brain injury only need to show that, to show that, but for the regular aid and attendance, they would require hospitalization, whereas veterans with severe physical disabilities would have an intermediate step in order to show that. But so. what, um, you, you lost me there, because what you said is just what the statute says. The secretary's counsel attempts to clarify by arguing that the plain language of the statute demonstrates an inconsistency in policy between veterans with traumatic brain injury and those with severe physical disabilities. And Judge Falvey jumps in and tries to help him out. Is is what you're saying is that Congress could not have intended such an absurd result? Is that? Uh, I wouldn't. I would. I wouldn't characterize it as absurd. Congress certainly could do that. I believe it's just, it's against the, it's against current policy that Congress has implemented overall with the system of of benefits and that it would be inconsistent with that. Is it, I I wouldn't call that absurd, Your Honor? Well, is we're doing, you know, statutory interpretation, um, it's, we should rely on uh, traditional canons of statutory interpretation. And uh, one of them is that uh, you, you shouldn't interpret a statute so as to present absurd results. Um, so that's one side of the coin. But it seems that the other side of the coin is that if Congress wrote something absurd, is it our job to rewrite it for them? The Secretary's Council emphasizes the focus on eligibility and says that the subsection has to be viewed in the context of the entire statute. And then when it is viewed in that context, in the context of the entire statute, his interpretation makes sense. So in a circumstance where a a veteran who is in need of regular aid and attendance that is no longer sufficient and then needs a higher level of care in order to take care of those, uh, those functions in life, if we're to read the language strictly and consider all of the the uh, definitions consistent across provisions and within the statute as a whole, then that veteran who needs a high level of care would not be eligible under Section T. Now, that is an absurd result. So what I think he was trying to say here is that 
if a veteran has TBI and because of the TBI, he needs, you know, supervision um, and protection from the hazards of his everyday environment, then that person under our reading would be entitled to SMCT if he or she would otherwise need to be hospitalized. And what the VA, I think, is trying to say here is that that doesn't make sense because then if the TBI causes the need for physical therapy, which is considered a higher level of care, then that person would no longer qualify for SMCT because he has a higher level of care, but that person also wouldn't re- wouldn't qualify for SMCR because to get to R, you need to have things like loss of use of both hands, loss of use of both feet, um, things, you know, anatomical injuries that folks with uh, TBI generally don't have as a result of the TBI. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm not following that at all. Yeah, because I'm, it doesn't I'm, make sense because it's not right, <laughs> in my opinion. I agree with your opinion that 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 doesn't make sense. If someone needed the regular aid and attendance plus PT, they would, of course, be eligible for T, which is paid at the same rate as R2. Right. You still need the regular aid and attendance. Right. Plus some higher level of, I don't want to throw that in there, right. but, you know, you need some aid and attendance plus something else. Right. So I think that's what he was trying to say. That was the thing that I remember sitting in the, in the courtroom and latching onto and thinking, oh, that's what he's saying. Well, that's awesome, but that's not what Congress said. So he can say that and the secretary can say that in the regulation all they like, but Congress didn't say that. I agree. So here's Chief Judge Bartley was still confused. She tried to get him to drill down a little bit deeper into this. Mr. Kerry, you you lost me earlier whenever you said you were talking about the potential absurd result here. And you said, so that would mean that a veteran with TBI under T would not be allowed to get the rate of payment that's made under R2? Yes, Your Honor. Because so, so the rate of payment under R2 and T is the same, right? So, yeah. um, But looking under T, because T, if, again, if we're reading it strictly, T does not contemplate the, the, uh, the higher level of care kind of intermediate step. Yeah, but, it's, but it, it says, and I still don't understand what you're saying. It says that if you have, you need regular aid and attendance, Due to a TBI, you're not eligible under R2. You get paid at R2. So what's, I don't understand the absurdity. I think the absurd result in the, that the uh, Secretary's Council is getting at involves a certain level of second guessing of congressional intent. The government here appears to think that veterans with severe physical disabilities are more disabled than veterans with severe residuals of traumatic brain injury. And the government appears to also believe that Congress could not possibly have wanted to compensate both types of disabled veterans at the same level. But guess what? That's what the plain language of the statute says. And I don't really understand why VA is willing to die on this particular hill 
but it just the plain language of the statute seems pretty clear. Is the court going to invalidate the regulation? Will they do a reasons or bases, you know, punt? Who knows? We'll see. Just one thing I would add here is something that we didn't really get into the oral argument, but like, I'm not kidding when I say I'm old enough to remember when there was a national awakening to TBI as a signature injury of veterans coming home from Iraq and Afghanistan and a national awakening also to the fact that injuries that you can't necessarily see can be just as disabling, if not more disabling than injuries that you can see like anatomical, physical injuries. And Congress, I think, in my opinion, um, in in amending 1114 to include this T level of uh, compensation did a great deal to remove the stigma that is attached to in the invisible injuries of war. And, um, you know, I, I think that's a really, really important context here. I agree with you, and I, th- I and I and I also think that that Congress was recognizing with this statute that there were people coming back from these more recent wars with injuries that would have killed veterans in other wars, and so you can't really understate you know the the nature of these disabilities, and. It seems pretty clear on its face that, yeah, Congress did intend to compensate both of these types of severe disabilities at the same rate mm-hmm. and that they knew how to say higher level of care and they knew how to put that in one statute and leave it out of the other. These statutes are right next to each other. And so if you're looking at the broader statutory scheme, you need to consider that as well. Mm-hmm. Um Amy, I think you did a fabulous job in the oral argument. Thank you. Um, I think Mr. Carey also did a really good job. Um, I, you know, I, I was really impressed with with the way that he handled uh, the the fire that he was receiving. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I thought it was uh, great that you were doing this at, at a law school. Yeah. Um, I hope that you got a, a great you know reception there, and the students, you know, turned out and appreciated the party's, you know, arguments and, and you know, getting to meet the judges and getting to meet the clerks and stuff like that. Did you have a good time? We did. Um, I want to first agree with you. I thought Brian Carey had a, a really nice delivery. I I asked him if in a prior life he was had a job in public speaking. Mm. He was he was that good. We had a great time. The university at Buffalo was very welcoming. The gentleman after whom the courtroom is named in the school was in attendance, and he gave a nice speech at the end about how much it meant to him for this argument to have taken place in uh-huh. named after him. Um, and then the clinic staff took us out for buffalo wings. So <laughs> that was that was a great time too. Well, yeah, and you were there in August, which is like the only month when it doesn't snow. So oh, and it was all... like a lovely break from the humidity and gross August that you, we get here in DC. So it was a it was a very nice time. I also want to give a shout out to my colleague April Donahauer, who wrote the briefs in this case, and these briefs are just gorgeous. I love them. I think she, you know, she, she's, she's an incredible writer every day, but these briefs I think are a really um, shining example of some wonderful legal writing. So if you ever want to be inspired, read her briefs. 
I actually do. I'll, I'll, I'll read anything that she writes. Yeah. She's great. She's, she's really phenomenal. I'm, I'm, I'm endlessly impressed with her. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, I don't know. You're fine. Yeah, Whatever. I'm okay. She teaches me. okay so the next case which i will cover is held versus mcdonough docket number 218048 this one's also about whether va's regulation is consistent with the statute it deals specifically with the statute and the regulation about when accredited agents and attorneys can recover fees for representing a claimant at the administrative level, so like at the RO or the board. This isn't about EJA fees, which are fees you can recover for your work at court. It's about fees you can recover for your work at the VA level. This argument was held at my alma mater, the Frederick G. Levin College of Law at the University of Florida. Go Gators! Unfortunately, it marks the second time that my law school has hosted an argument and I didn't get to argue it, Uh, but it was in great hands with Kenny Dohakis, who argued before Judges Allen, Falvey, and Jaquith on behalf of Mr. Held, who is the accredited agent who represented the veteran, not the veteran himself. And James Drysdale appeared for the secretary. So to understand the issues here, we need to go over the procedural history and the statutory history. So first, the procedural history. Uh, Prior to 2017, this vet had a 70% rating for PTSD. In 2017, the RO granted a temporary total rating based on inpatient hospitalization. But instead of giving him back the 70 when the temporary total rating was over, they gave him 50. So one year and one month later, so just one month late on the deadline to appeal that decision, the vet appointed Mr. Held as his representative, and Mr. Held submitted a request to revise the 2017 decision based on clear and unmistakable error, or what we in the business called Q. He smartly argued that by giving the vet a 50 instead of his 70, the RO impermissibly reduced his disability rating. So fast forward now to December 2019. The RO agrees and revises the 2017 decision to reflect that the rating was returned to 70 after the temporary total. So great. Now there's some retro benefits for the veteran and Mr. Held is entitled to a fee from that retro, right? Maybe. Yes. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. This is where the statutory history comes in. A lot of our listeners, listeners probably already know There was a long time when you couldn't charge more than like $10 or something for work done on a VA claim. And this was all the way back to the Civil War era. Um, But with the Veterans Judicial Review Act in 88, it opened it up to where you could charge a fee, but just in very limited circumstances. And then starting in 2007, Congress changed the law again so that you could charge fees for work done after a notice of disagreement. And with the AMA in 20, effective 2019, it opened up even more. Now you can charge fees for work done after an initial decision. So they, they moved the line back a little bit further. So to me, the key question in this case and held is what version of Section 5904, the statute governing fees, applies? The one that applied in 2017 when the RO made the initial decision with respect to the case, 
or the law that applied in 2019 when the RO corrected its clear and unmistakable error. And this question is really important because in 2017, 5904 allowed for fees only if there was an NOD. And here there was none. Remember, we missed the deadline to file an appeal in this case on the 2017 decision by one month. Um, and so it became final in 2018. And that's why Mr. Held had to file a queue instead of an appeal. Um, so obviously, Mr. Held needs the current AMA version to apply in this case because there was never an NOD. And here's Kenny explaining why the AMA version applies. Important to understand here is that the decision that found Q was issued in December 2019. And under um, the public law, Section 2X, the amendments made in, in, this, in the law shall apply to all claims on which notice of the decision is provided by the secretary on or after that date. And so because the, the decision finding and finding Q and revising the prior decision was issued after February 2019, the amended statutes apply. This all makes sense to me, and I think Kenny's right about the statute. VA, however, has promulgated a regulation that doesn't track this. The regulation, 38 CFR 14.636C2, little two. It says if you win a queue on a decision that was issued prior to AMA, so prior to February 2019, you don't get a fee unless there was an, also an NOD on that decision. It's basically importing the old repealed statute into the regulation for certain cases. So that's really the heart of the case here. Is the regulation a valid construction of 5904C1 that doesn't have any language importing prior versions in? Hmm, are we seeing a theme happening here? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Well, Amy, I guess it won't surprise you to learn that VA thinks the regulation is a valid construction of 5904C1, notwithstanding the lack of any language indicating that Congress meant to pull in the prior version. Who'd have thought? Yeah. Shocker, right? Mm -hmm. VA says that because the 2017 decision that had Q in it was made prior to the effective date of the AMA changes to 5904C1, the AMA changes don't apply. Never mind that the decision correcting the Q was issued in AMA, what counts is the 2017 decision. Judge Allen immediately pointed out that there is no statutory language supporting this. So let's just assume that um, the decision that was being challenged with respect to Q had occurred after the effective date of the AMA. And the same thing happened here, which is the uh, request for Q is, is granted or the motion is granted. The Secretary's regulation draws a distinction between those two types of events, right? When it the does. When the first decision. And if you were to point to the part of the statute that allows you to draw that distinction, keeping in mind that the, the uh, Federal Circuit in the supplemental claim context has seemed to suggest that drawing the distinction between a continuously pursued supplemental claim and one that isn't, isn't supported by statutory language. What would you point us to in this case that would allow us to say, and dear Federal Circuit, don't reverse us because what you said in MVA 
doesn't apply here. You follow what I'm saying? The only language that VA could point to here in response to Judge Allen is the effective date provision of the AMA, Section 2X of the Public Law. But remember, that says that AMA changes apply to any claim in which there is an RO decision dated after 2019. And Mr. Held has that, the December 2019 rating decision that fixed the queue. And don't you think that that section, that the emphasis is not on the claim, that the emphasis there is the decision, right? Yeah. Once you get a decision on the claim, then the AMA rules apply to the claim. And so- Right. As long as the decision was issued after February 19, 2019. Right. So it makes perfect sense to me that that means that, especially because there's no language otherwise in the statute pulling in these old repealed versions, it makes sense to me that, you know, what what Kenny is saying is correct. Right. Um, so later, VA all but admits that the statute doesn't contain the language found in the reg that pulls in the old uh, versions of the statute and creates a differential treatment of cues depending on the initial decision and whether it was in legacy or AMA. And so the if you look at the regulation, it's structured in, in the text and structure of it. it. You know, you have C1, C2, and C3. The C3 really relates to the earliest version of 5904 and explains if a case is governed by that version of the statute, these are the rules that apply. C2 uh, tracks with the version of 5904 that was in effect from 2006 to 2019, which the initial decision here we say would be in that. So that says if the statute governs that, that, these are the rules that apply. And C1 tracks with the amendments made in the AMA legislation as of 2019 and says, okay, if you have an initial decision that's governed by this version of the statute, these are the rules that apply. So Congress didn't spell all of that out in the AMA legislation itself, but it does provide effective dates for the AMA legislation. He's right. The statute doesn't actually say that. He's really asking the court to do a lot of work here to read all that into the statute, in my opinion. And in the meantime, Judge Allen, famous for his hypotheticals, came up with some for VA that really seemed to poke some holes in the logic of the secretary's argument. First, he pointed out how the federal circuit said in military veterans advocates versus the secretary, or MVA for short, and you may have heard Judge Allen refer to this case in one of the previous clips. Um, But in that case, the Federal Circuit said that under the AMA version of 5904C, you can collect fees on successful supplemental claims filed any time after the initial decision, even if it's several years after the initial decision. And the Secretary agreed in this case that this means that if a legacy decision denied a claim, fees would still be available on a subsequent supplemental claim that was decided in AMA. Here's Judge Allen's response to that. Yeah, but why does that make a difference? The only difference in those two situations essentially is the size of the check, right? Because in in a claim for re-adjudication in a supplemental claim, the effective date, assuming it's not continuously pursued, right? The effective date would be the date of filing of the supplemental claim. If instead you said the initial decision 
that it had Q, the only difference would be then the effective date, the amount of money would go back to the initial filing, right? You know, I'm not sure the secretary really had an answer to that. And then he was hit with another Judge Allen hypo. Let's assume that the 2019, December 29th decision, uh, 2019 decision had denied the motion to revise based on Q. Okay. And then Mr. Held files a whole bunch of other things, does a higher level review, which then continues the denial of the Q motion. He files a claim to the board. The board denies the Q motion, right? He comes to the court, the court remands, the board again denies, he comes to the court, it goes back, and then eventually an adult comes into the room and says, we made a mistake, it was 50, it should have been 70. And so eight years later, it's resolved. No fees. I mean, I, I believe that would be correct under the reading of the law and, and when the work has to be performed and the version of the statute that governs the initial decision. So the secretary's answer here gives you an idea of how seemingly unfair the reg is. It says it means that you could never get fees on a Q if the decision with the Q in it is dated prior to 2019, unless you filed an NOD on that same decision. So they're saying here, the only way that Mr. Held would be entitled to a fee is if he filed an NOD on the 2017 decision that had Q on it and then later abandoned the appeal so that there wasn't a board decision and then came back more than a year later and filed a Q. But this is like even inconsistent with the 2007 version of the law because even if you file an NOD on the decision as to whether there was a queue, so in this case, imagine the December 2019 decision denied that there was queue and Mr. Held filed an NOD on that and was ultimately successful, he still wouldn't get fees. And this is totally illogical. Under the law prior to AMA, you could get fees if you filed an NOD on the queue decision. So it's right. Like, I've, I've got a question for you, Amy. Okay. And, and you can maybe this is a stupid question, but under MBA, MBA says that you can get a fee on a supplemental claim, <laughs> right? On a supplemental claim that's filed on a decision that became final, right? Right. That, that it's over a year. What if they filed a supplemental claim and the new and material evidence in the supplemental claim or the new and relevant evidence in the supplemental claim was saying that there was Q in the 2017 decision. Is this just a matter of like not submitting the right form? There is no form for Q. But what if you submitted a supplemental claim and said, my new and relevant evidence that I'm submitting beyond the one year is that there was clear and unmistakable error in the 2017 decision? Well, they would probably send you a letter and say you submitted the wrong form because <laughs> it's not a supplemental claim. I I don't think I mean we can we can debate this and this might come up in the future, but I don't think I think there's a difference between a supplemental claim and a queue because supplemental claim is based on new and relevant evidence and a queue is based on the record as it existed at the time of the prior decision. So there is no new and relevant evidence. But, you know, we just heard VA admit that in the scenario that you described where they file a supplemental claim more than a year after the decision, they get fees on that. 
But if it's yes. you, you don't. That's why it doesn't make sense. Yeah. They've, the regulation essentially removes from the universe of cases where you can get fees a specific class of claims where you just could never, ever, ever get fees on it no matter what. Judge Allen, again, has a really salient point on this. Other than altruism, why would a, a, a lawyer or agent ever assist a veteran in a Q case claim with respect to a decision that pre, uh, predated December 19, 2019? With no NOD. Yeah, like I think Judge Allen's got a great point here. And it's also the secretary's argument seems to bump up against the federal circuit's holding kind of policy holding in MVA that the AMA changes to the fee rules were meant to encourage more professional representation and not to limit the kinds of cases that an agent or attorney can collect a fee on. I was recently in attendance at the bar and bench conference in Baltimore, and I believe it was Chief Judge Bartley who said something like, boy, if you know, Congress ever wanted to create a system where you absolutely need a lawyer's representation, the AMA is it. Because, you know, the choice and control motto of AMA really means that there are a lot of forks in the road that an unrepresented um, veteran who doesn't have a lot of experience in, you know, statutory interpretation has to take. And you really do need competent legal advice in a lot of these cases to know, you know, where to go where you're not going to get trapped. We we are seeing a lot of cases coming up to the court now on these statutory interpretation questions. For example, in Terry, one of the questions is, if you file an initial claim, it's denied, and you file subsequently a supplemental claim, which is also denied, and then go to the board, is the board looking at the merits of the initial claim, assuming that we've continuously prosecuted this initial claim? Or is the board looking at whether there's new and relevant evidence? And unless and until we get an answer to that question, you really don't know. Nobody knows what are the ramifications of filing a, a supplemental claim as opposed to a board appeal. Um, hopefully the court will ish will answer that question in the near future. It kind of punted on it and Terry versus McDonough and look for the more narrow holding. But I mean, it's a really important question to understand at all how this system works. Um, and maybe once we get those answers, the, the system will move a lot smoother. But in the meantime, I agree with Chief Judge Bartley. I mean, you need to have an experienced advocate when you're dealing with the AMA, because you just don't know where you could end up. And uh, this uh, part of the way that you can ensure that Congress can ensure that folks have representation, experience, knowledgeable representatives available to them is to, you know, open up the universe of cases where somebody can, you know, keep the lights on doing this work. Uh, right. And, um, you know, I'm hopeful that we're not going to see uh, the court shrink the that universe of cases in the and in, in withheld, but to um, render a decision that is in line with congressional intent here. I hope that the Veterans Court also takes um, a more proactive approach 
in announcing law regarding the AMA and distinctions between the AMA and legacy system. Yeah. Well, at this point in the argument, I'm kind of leaning back. I'm feeling pretty good for Mr. Held here. But wait, there's more. At the very last minute, the secretary very shrewdly pulls this out. Um, and one final point um, in my, my final seconds, and I, not to really shift gears too hard, but I would just draw the court's attention to the record at 2854. So that is um, the fee agreement between the veteran and the representative. They contemplated this in the text of the agreement. They said that the representation would be for work on appeals where an NOD was filed on or after June 9, 2007. That's not done here. Hey, this seems to really resonate with Judges Jaquith and Allen. Here's Judge Jaquith, followed by Judge Allen. While it's fresh, why don't you start with the impact of the March 2018 fee agreement here? And and as part of that, why now, because I had not thought of this uh, point this way, why would this not make this an advisory opinion? In other words, the fee agreement that your client entered into let's assume you're right um, on the law, actually limited fees more than what the law would have allowed him to get because it included a requirement that was for an NOD to have been filed and there was never an amended fee agreement that removed that requirement as a matter of contract between them. And so why would it not be an advisory opinion to issue the decision that you're asking? Well, I think Kenny answered this as well as possible, but I also think it's a real problem here. The same kind of issue just came up in the federal circuit in Viterna versus McDonough, and the federal circuit held in that case that the language of the fee agreement controls. So even if you may have been entitled to a fee under the, the statute, if your fee agreement narrows the types of claims for which you could get a fee, the fee agreement is going to control. And based on this, Judge Allen suggested that they might be able to dismiss the appeal without ever reaching the merits because there really isn't any case or controversy here. Whatever they say about what 5904C uh, allows and which version applies might not make a difference here if there's if the fee the fee agreement controls and there's there's no fee here. No. I wouldn't think of this as a jurisdictional case or controversy issue as much as a prejudicial error issue. So like I think no. they can yeah. and should address the merits and then they can address whether this language uh renders any error harmless. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I'm not on the panel, so I don't have, unfortunately, my opinion means, as you would say, Amy, Bupkiss. Well, <laughs> damn it, Amy, get on the panel. <laughs> All right, that's it for uh, this, uh, I don't know, week, month, this year's, this semester's, this quarter's uh, episode of uh, Arguendo. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We really appreciate it. Stay tuned. This podcast is a production of CCK Law, produced by Amy Kretkowski, Gordon Lutzai, and Amy Odom. Edited to within an inch of its life by Gordon Lutzai. 
Our theme music was created by J. Raul Brody. And no animals were harmed in the making of this podcast.